Hi, everyone. This is Sports Matters, December 3rd, 2013. Joined by Ed Barnes, I'm Brian Wilmer. And uh, I'm not going to waste any time on this. This has been one of the goofiest days I can recall in a long time in terms of baseball transactions and such. Uh, we had quite a few that came in earlier today, and we'll talk about some of those. But let's talk about the one that just came down, Ed, while we while we were doing our other show. And since you broke it to me, I'll let you break it to the universe. In case you haven't heard yet, Jacoby Ellsbury has signed a free agent contract with the Yankees for seven years, and the reports – uh, multiple ones at that have placed the dollar value at $153 million with an option for an eighth year, which could take it to $169 million. Um, wow. It, it's pretty <laughs> stunning, uh, Brian, to think that this man is 30 years old. Right. And um, if you look at his career, he's a guy with an OPS plus of 108. And I realize that's a very, you know, there are much more advanced metrics you could use, but uh, that's a quick and ready one from baseball for, or from baseball reference that's out there. And you're just looking at it going, uh, okay. Now, I understand defensively the man uh, is, is got some skills out there, as the kids like to say, and posted a war of uh, 5.8 according to baseball reference. And I know that Fangraphs has a different – uh, a different formula for their version of war. Uh, and then two years prior in 2011, posted a war of 8.1, but still a seven-year contract for an outfielder who, um, well, he's had a bit of an injury history, I think is more than fair to say. Yeah. What the heck, man? I mean, I, I don't even know how to explain this in a good way. So the Yankees thus far have spent... $238 million over 12 years on an injury-prone 30-plus-year-old outfielder and an injury-prone 30-plus-year-old catcher. That uh, sounds like uh, very solid reasoning. It sounds like they're sticking to their system of youth that they were so committed to. And amazingly... Until they didn't make the playoffs. Yeah, amazingly, neither of those guys can play third base. Hmm. Interesting how that works. Uh, yeah. There's also some talk that this would not keep the Yankees out of the process of re-signing Robinson Cano. But I thought that they had a budget now. That's what I thought. Now, the, the funny thing is, there's been some talk that the Mariners are in on Robinson Cano. And nice. can you imagine? It's like it's like I tweeted earlier. Robinson Cano calls up the Yankees. It's like, yeah, hi, um, Steinbrenner's. I've been talking to the Mariners, and they're going to offer me $200 million. Will you match? And the Yankees just simply say LOL and hang up the phone. Oh, man. I, I, have, a few, I have a few more thoughts on this Jacoby Ellsbury thing. And I, the guy's very fast. I get it. He's had, two, he's had three seasons now where he's stolen 50-plus bases. That's great. Um, you know, but at the same time, is, is anyone looking at his 2011 season – as anything other than a ridiculous outlier at this point where he hit 32 home runs. He's got 65 career home runs and hit 32 in one season. Yeah, and not just that. Look at his slash against lefties this year. Okay, well, we're going to have to open that up. But wow, uh, and you're just saying this year, not even in his career line, but just this year? Well, this year specifically. But this year specifically. Okay, yeah. well, we're going to get back to that in a second. While that's loading, I'm going to head down to the bottom of the baseball reference page where you find out they have similarity scores. Ah, uh, yes. Love these. <laughs> okay. So the top similarity scores, uh, Pete Reiser, you know, and that's an old school player right there. Um, but then number two, Shane Mack. Number three, Angel Pagan. <laughs> yeah. Sleep tight. Uh, well, and then they also have another – they have another list uh, where they're talking about similar batters through the age of 29. Uh, and then you, you're getting a list of Phil Bradley, Tony Gonzalez, Roberto Kelly, Tommy Holmes, Carl Ferrillo, um, Ferrillo, excuse me, uh, which that would be a pretty good name if he – I mean that was a pretty good player right there. And then Ken Griffey. Not Ken Griffey Jr., but Ken Griffey. And then uh, David DeJesus, Shane Victorino, Pete Fox, and Coco Crisp. By the way, speaking of Ken Griffey, it reminded me, I got a press release from the Reds uh, earlier today before we went on, um, and it was talking about the 2014 inductees into the Reds Hall of Fame. And of the three modern-era players, 
Ken Griffey Jr. is one of them. Makes sense. Dave Parker is another. Again, makes sense. The third one, Ron Oster. Uh-huh. Right. Now, I loved Ron Oster as a player. Uh, I grew up watching the Reds. I, w- I was a big you know, Dave Concepcion fan, but I, I liked sure. Ron Oster too. But just because you like a player doesn't mean they're a team Hall of Famer. Right. Yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting choice. That's a very interesting choice. Uh, I did manage to pull up that slash line that you were talking about. Is this the one where you're talking about the... 246, 323, 318 against lefties? Uh, yes, and in 237 plate appearances. It wasn't as though that was just some kind of a, a small sample size. Okay, so you paid $153 million for a guy who probably should be platooned. Yeah, a guy who OPS is 641 against left-handers. Huh. Now, I understand speed doesn't slump, but you still have to reach first base. Yeah. Um, hmm. God, that's just a head-scratcher, and there have been a lot of them today, and I know that we're going to run some, down some of those right now. Yes, we but are. Just, just my thought when you mentioned Ron Oster going into the Reds Hall of Fame, like, does that mean that Raleigh Eastwick is going in as well? Or, I mean, like, <laughs> what, what other random Red can we pull out of our backside, you know? Aaron Bates. Billy Bates. Wow. All the Bateses. <laughs> All the bases. <laughs> you're going in the Hall of Fame, and you're going in the Hall of Fame. You're all going in the Hall of Fame. Glenn Braggs. Glenn Braggs snapping the bat against his own back <laughs> while swinging and missing in the World Series. That was fantastic. The um, Speaking of head-scratchers, the Rockies are about to sign a two-year deal with Justin Morneau, according to our buddy Troy Rank. Okay. I, yeah, I mean, Todd Helton is... You know, he, he retired, so... <laughs> now, one one thing about Morneau. In 2013, he had an ISO of 152. The league average was apparently 146 last year. Well, once he goes to Colorado, that'll get better. Yeah, but the league ISO average of 146, doesn't that seem a little low? Uh, Well, the, the you know... Chicks dig the long ball still because they don't happen as much anymore, Brian, apparently. You know, apparently a lot of people were on the were on the drugs. I mean, Ellsbury's career ISO is one forty one. So for hundred and fifty three million over the next seven years. Yeah. Um more strange signings. Jared Saltalamachia, three years, twenty one million dollars to go play for the Miami Marlins. Really don't understand what they're doing with that one. Um they, they've got a whole lot more that they need to deal with than trying to sign him. Just a catcher. I, I don't think that's going to all of a sudden put him over the hump. Well, allegedly, they won him over because there's no income tax in Florida and his family is from Wellington, Florida. Okay. I mean, you know, if that's your, if that's your determinant for picking a baseball team is that you'd like to be closer <laughs> to home instead of staying with the team that you, you know, won the World Series with, um, you know, that's your prerogative, buddy, but... Yeah, by the way, uh, nice 21.2% caught stealing percentage last year. Second to last. Wow. Yeah, that's, it's amazing how some teams have just kind of ignored that and just thought, oh, we'll just focus on getting the batter. You can take a base. It's okay. Yeah, that reminds me. I, I saw the uh, the copy about A.J. Pruszynski going to the Red Sox. And first of all, it's it's pretty funny that his numbers are almost identical to what Red Sox catchers turned in last year. But they pointed out that last year he threw out a career-high 33% of base runners. Yeah, it's, uh, the you know, there's been so much talk of, you see teams like the Rays, um, you know, and they, they employ one of the catching Molina brothers because he is so good at handling pitchers and framing pitches, and they feel like that is a, an area that is underappreciated in the game of baseball, and it's undervalued. Right. And, you know, I'm willing to believe pretty much whatever the Rays say because it's working. Yeah, more, we actually have more about the Rays in just a second, actually. But but, uh, but still, when you hear about something like that, that being you know, a big influence on, on the way that they think and they hey, feel like, hey, we can get someone you know, on the cheap that can really impact the game in a big, big way, and then you hear about big money contracts being handed out to catchers who have, you know, okay offensive numbers for catchers, I guess, but, you know, defensively aren't very good, and you're thinking, huh, okay, well – Teams are just going to kind of continue to – is Ed Wade still a GM somewhere? Is that <laughs> is that how this is working? How is Ruben Amaro not been involved in any of this? I don't know. 
We uh, we I had the know. the Doug Fister trade to the Nationals last night, where Steve Lombardozzi, Ian Kroll, and Robbie Ray come back to Detroit. And then the Tigers have now turned around and added Joe Nathan as their closer. Yeah, uh, which yeah, I, you know, I trademark proven closer, but still, uh, you know, they. I don't know, man. I, I just, I just don't. I, I just am left scratching my head by so many of these moves. I mean, you mentioned Dexter Fowler being traded to the Astros. Yeah, uh, Dexter Fowler traded to the Astros for Brandon Barnes, who, by the way, I really like as a defensive outfielder, uh, and he he's got the potential to hit. He didn't really hit last year, but he's got the potential to hit. And then Jordan Lyles, a kid from Hartsville, South Carolina, which is just down the road from here. Uh, a kid who started out really well last year and a, and a guy who was a useful fantasy starter for a lot of people and then just kind of hit the wall. He had a 48.3% ground ball percentage last year, I think, 48.2 or 48.3, which obviously plays well in Denver. If your sinker can keep sinking that much, yes, it absolutely does, and that makes sense. Um, at the same time, when Dexter Fowler was healthy last year, he seemed like he took a major step forward in his development. And he really was a very, very effective player for the Rockies, like I said, when healthy. And that's been the big problem. And, you know, you're going to start to see some of these moves that don't seem to make a ton of sense, mainly for financial reasons. And I'm sure that Fowler probably was at a place with arbitration where he was about to get a lot more expensive and the Rockies didn't feel it was worth it. Yeah, and you kind of wonder with all the uh, these statistically oriented minds in the Astros front office now with Jeff Luno and, of course, uh, the the – infamous Kevin Goldstein in the Astros scouting department and such now, you, you wonder, with their sabermetrically oriented line of thinking, if they're going to use Dexter Fowler to eventually add some kind of depth or some kind of sabermetric addition that helps them continue to grow. I mean, I don't know that they want to build that team around Fowler, but they've, they've got a lot better piece in trading him than they would have if they traded Barnes and Lyle separately. Well, uh, you know, it, it, I guess it all depends on what you feel like you're going to get out of him. I mean, I mentioned Dexter Fowler had the health issues last year. He had a good stretch, and then he got dinged up and never really was the same when he came back and ended up posting a, an OPS of 776, playing half his games at Coors Field, which is a little scary. But the guy over the last three years has kind of established a bit of a baseline for himself as, a, as somewhere that's going to be a two to a two-and-a-half win player. And if you're using war as a metric, and I'm looking at the baseball reference one right now, and his salary has also started to go up as well. Like I mentioned, he made 2.35 million in 2012, and then last season 4.25 million. So you can only imagine that that figure is going to go way up for whatever the Astros are going to be paying him next year. Now, do you really feel like if you're the Astros that if you're going to spend eight million dollars on an outfielder that he's the guy to spend it on? I, I, it's kind of a head scratcher, isn't it? Yeah, I had to laugh too. <laughs> Somebody was talking about how he he had a low rating in defensive runs saved. <laughs> wow. <laughs> From Durr. the creators of Durr. Durr. <laughs> uh, another uh, head-scratcher that happened earlier today, Luke Gregerson, one of the Padres' most successful relievers, although we, we both agree on the fungibility of relievers uh, in terms of, of deals. Spun to the Oakland A's, and the return being Seth Smith, and our uh, our great friend Jeff Young pointing out earlier today that Seth Smith is kind of an extraneous part on a team that has Will Venable, and, and my response is kind of, you know, along the lines of, well, at least you know you'll have the exact same player in both corner outfield spots now. Right. Uh, you know, I, I don't really get it, and, and, and while relievers are fungible, the kind of caveat to that is consistent relievers are not. True. Very true. Uh, the volatility of relievers has always been very high. So when you look at Luke Gregerson, and this is a guy that in his career has uh, appeared in a low of 61 games, and that was in 2011. So every other year outside of that, he's appeared in 72 or more games. So he's getting the ball a lot. And if you look at his career ERA, it's 2.88. Now, I realize he's pitching half his games at Petco. But still, even if you you look at another quick measurement like ERA plus, that's a 126 ERA plus over a five year career as a reliever. Never had an ERA higher than 3.24, and that was in his very first season. Over the last three years, it's been 275, 239, 271. So while the idea of trading a reliever who's going to appear in you know 70 to 80 games for a guy who could potentially play 100 games or be uh, half of an effective platoon or what have you, 
seems like a good one on paper. Luke Rankerson's been a very consistent reliever, and the consistent ones are the ones that seem to be hard to find. So that's what makes this move a little bit of a head-scratcher for me. Yeah, see, two other things, too. First of all, you have to figure with Gregerson being more of a ground ball pitcher, he he did struggle last year with getting the sinker up a little bit, and I think most Padre fans saw that happen in very in, in, inopportune times. But you figure going to an extreme fly ball park like Oakland, it might be a little more forgiving for him, maybe. But you also have to consider... He's not going to go there to close. He's going there to set up Jim Johnson, whom the uh, the A's acquired for Jamal Weeks late last night, which was another head-scratcher of a deal. Um, but he's going there to set up an, an established closer, as he did in San Diego. And you kind of, if you're a Padre fan, you almost kind of have to hope, as bad as this sounds, that it ends up turning out like Mike Adams did after he was dealt. Maybe. I mean, you know, I have a ton of respect for Darren Balsley and the job that he does handling the Padre pitching staff and the way that he's able to seemingly help pitchers um, you know, discover things about themselves that they weren't able to show in other places. Uh, and Petco Park has obviously helped. And I know that the fences have been moved in slightly and that some of the offensive numbers have gone up over the last year. But at the same time, it's still a pretty good place to pitch. So even moving to Oakland, I don't think he's going to get a huge bump from that versus Petco. Do you? No, not really. I mean, but the thing is, you figure – you know, there's not really a whole lot of a bump that he needs. He's he's your guy who's going to immediately slot in in the eighth inning. You have him, uh, you know, to come in and, and bore the ball in uh, on right-handers, you know, occasionally work the ball away from left-handers and, and get uh, get bad swings. You have Sean Doolittle from the left side who counters him effectively, another guy who can pitch to both sides of the plate effectively. The the A's are setting up a nice back end of their bullpen, and it's, it's tough to question that part of their strategy. Yeah, I just um, – I – if you look at his peripherals, really almost across the board, I mean, he seems like a pretty good guy to have in your pen. And, uh, you know, Seth Smith, is, he's gone from Colorado to Oakland and been an average outfielder. Yeah, he's a guy, basically. So, I mean, I get it, uh, at least on paper, the idea of trading for a position player with a reliever. But still, you're looking at a reliever who's got a strikeout-to-walk ratio of three and a half. Last year, 3.3 for his career, um, you know, home runs per nine, 0.4. I mean, you're, these are like nice numbers across the board. And while there might have been the bad moments that led to him to have an ugly eight-loss season last year as a reliever, uh, the guy's body of work seems to be pretty darn good. Well, uh, maybe maybe they felt the ODAs something after uh, after ripping a pretty useful starter in Tyson Ross for Andy Perino. Maybe. I don't know. I don't think that kind of guilt uh, is something that's going to be uh, existing in baseball. True, true. Right, unless you know, unless it's like that movie version of Moneyball. Oh, um, something that my father asked, and, and it's it's a fairly salient point before we go on. It, it, we probably should address it. Uh, he was asking about what Lou Brock and Ricky Henderson, Henderson would get money-wise if they played in this market. I would add another name. What would happen if Tim Raines played in this market? Okay, I'm just going to make the joke. Tim Raines would uh, sign as a free agent in Toronto, I think, probably immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, uh, oh, hi, Rob if you, if, yeah, if you were looking at a guy like Ricky Henderson, because his numbers would put a guy like Jacoby Ellsbury to shame. Uh, yes, absolutely. So if you're looking at Ricky Henderson, although – Someone would probably come out and find a way to say that Ricky Henderson's defense was not good enough or something of that nature, and therefore he doesn't justify the $200 million contract that would be offered to him by 15 teams. Yeah, I mean, if if Jacoby Ellsbury is a $150 million player, then Lou Brock, Ricky Henderson, and Tim Raines are all $200-plus million players. Uh, it's, that's not even a question. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just scary. <laughs> Jacoby Ellsbury with his... You know, I mean, what did I, I'm going back here to look at it. I look at OPS plus just because it's available and I'm on the BREF site right now. But he of his career 108 OPS plus, and now we go over to Ricky Henderson. Let's see how this goes. I don't think it's going to go well for Mr. Ellsbury. <laughs> and this is even after hanging on for several seasons where he probably didn't need to be playing anymore, and that includes all of those down years which is basically the last like six or seven seasons of his career, and his OPS plus still 127. 
I mean, this is a guy that in the prime of his career started reeling off lines where if you're just looking again at OPS plus 135, 151, 122, 139, 146, 157, 125, 145, you get the idea. All the way down to his year in 1990 when he posted an OPS plus of 189. Jeez. Yeah. So uh, just – just uh, I mean, this was a guy that, if you, and if you look at war, you know, a more all-encompassing stat, this was a guy that was consistently between a six and nine-win player during the prime of his career. See, a lot of people talk about Jack Morris on this, this year's Hall of Fame ballot and such, and, you know, but to me, a player like a Henderson or, it, you know, more specifically, a Tim Raines, give me Tim Raines right now versus Jack Morris, and I'll, I'll win more games. Well, I mean, then you run into the argument, of course you will, because he's a position player and he has more chance to affect the ball game and stuff like that. Well, sure, but I mean, people keep saying about how, you know, Jack Morris' career ERA and all these other different things that show that he's not a Hall of Fame-worthy pitcher are deceiving statistics and everything. And, you know, it goes back to the whole Vin Scully thing, you know, statistics are like a drunk on a lamppost. (laughs) They're meant to support, or they're they're not meant to support, they're meant to illuminate or something like that. (laughs) That's a good line. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, you can you can take statistics and make them darn near anything you want. But I mean, the gulf in the numbers we're spitting out between these players are so ridiculous. And sure, we're talking about Hall of Fame level talent versus a guy that was second in the MVP voting once. To, uh, we're, to, we're not talking about the same type of guy. So obviously the numbers are going to be pretty stark in contrast. But if we're just talking about what would this guy get in salary these days, oh, gosh. Scott Boris's research department would have a field day. <laughs> He's probably trying to talk Ricky out of retirement now. Seriously. <laughs> Ricky's 55. Yeah, dude, come on come on out of retirement. Yeah, we no, we're good, man. We're good. We'll find something for you. To, uh, to call back on two things we've been discussing already, first of all, uh, consistent relievers. And actually, both of these players ended up with the Rays, but consistent relievers, Heath Bell, things have gone just completely sideways for him since he leaves San Diego. He ends up uh, as part of a three-way deal going to Tampa Bay following the uh, Kyle Farnsworth experiment and the Fernando Rodney experiment. Uh, three teams, by the way, will be paying Heath Bell next year. The Rays, Diamondbacks, and, and Marlins will all be paying Heath Bell next year. Um, and Ryan Hannigan, another one of those defensive catchers, a very Jose Molina-type catcher, whom the Rays love and gave a three-year deal to after acquiring him. He's another guy, a lot of people don't really understand the attraction with Hannigan, but he's one of those guys who controls the game behind the plate. He's not going to be uh, you know, a, a whopper on offense or anything like that, but he is a guy who fits into that Madden mold, somebody who you know can control the action behind the plate, kind of another coach on the field, uh, somebody who steals you, five, six pitches a game, somebody who's a good catch-and-throw guy, sets up well, uh, those kinds of things. That's what Madden loves, and that's what Ryan Hannigan is. And I guess that's what you're going to need if you're going to sell you know, your fans on a guy that hit 198 last year. Uh, yeah, true. Uh, and, you know, still had it on base at 306 for whatever that's mm-hmm. worth. But He'll take a walk. Jose Lobaton, uh, another pod, uh, former Padre catcher and current Ray catcher, maybe dealt to the White Sox out of all this. And I, I had to just crack up the other day. Somebody was talking about A.J. Pruszynski and his leadership abilities. And somebody used the example of, did you see how the White Sox went in the tank after Pruszynski left Chicago? Mm, did you see how the Giants improved as soon as they got rid of him? <laughs> you know, I mean, you could find examples either way. I mean, his tenure with the Giants was about as bad as it possibly could have gone, starting with him kneeing a trainer in the groin area when he came out to help him in spring training. <laughs> you remember that story oh yes that that was amazing um but that you know that move it fits into the race philosophy kind of something we touched on earlier but some of these other moves they're these big money moves and i just wonder if these teams really you're 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 spending if you're jacoby ellsbury you're spending 153 million dollars on a guy who is a speed-based player and speed doesn't tend to age very well so what do you really expect when you're getting to the seventh year of that deal? And that's the thing it's come to with a lot of free agent contracts. 
especially it seems like over the last five to seven years where teams are saying, look, we think we're going to get four good years. I remember this happened with Carlos Lee with the Houston Astros specifically where they signed him to a six-year deal, and the thought was we hope we can get four good years out of him and we're willing to pay two years so we get four good ones. Yeah. Which just seems completely ridiculous. It's the same thing with Carl Crawford. Carl Crawford got a ridiculously backloaded deal because they wanted the first few years of production, and then they wound up spinning him off to L.A. And there he is out in Los Angeles and, you know, collecting the last of that seven-year, $142 million contract. And I'd be happy to collect it, too. Hey, this is not about Carl Crawford, but you just wonder what these teams are thinking, signing guys where it's like, okay, well, he doesn't really hit for power. This game's based on his legs. Yeah, this this is going to be a good idea. We'll take him at 37. Another uh, confusing couple of signings, the Twins bringing in Ricky Nolasco and Phil Hughes for a combined, just straight salary, seven years, $73 million. There's a fifth-year vesting option on the back of Nolasco's deal, which if he pitches 400 innings between 2016 and 2017, that option vests at $13 million for that final year of that deal. That's a lot of money for two mediocre pitchers. Gosh, I mean, Ricky Nolasco has had some great moments, you know. You can watch him on a given night, and he looks like a world beater. But there's never been any kind of consistency to him, not to mention, you know, plenty of you know, little nicks and whatnot, too. But, you know, <laughs> you might see him on a good night where he strikes at 12. At the same time, you would think that the resume of a 4.37 ERA – is one that doesn't really bode too well, especially in a league where having an ERA in the threes is no longer exceptional. True. So, man, do you ever think that, you know, you just needed to keep throwing, just see what happens, maybe just get that one deal out of it? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Gosh. The, uh, The Brian McCann deal, too, we should talk about. Five years, $85 million. Now, keep in mind... He's 29 now, about to be 30. Five years, $85 million straight, has a six-year vesting option for $15 more million. However, if that option vests, he can then void it. And they also gave him a full no trade. It's the highest amount ever given to a catcher in free agency, the average of $17 million. Okay. Well, um... You being a brave supporter, Brian, uh, you could speak to the fact that you would think Brian McCann, probably good for what? Especially if you DH him once in a while, maybe he's going to get to the 120-game mark? Maybe. Maybe? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, I just you know, I, I just have a tough time seeing this one working out. So he comes up to the Braves as a 21-year-old, and then in his age 22 season – Plays 130 games. The following season, 139. The next season, 145. Now we get to age 25, it's 138. And even at age 26, 143 games. So that's been really remarkably consistent for a catcher, right? However, the last three years, 128, 121, and 122, or in 102 games played respectively. Uh, I think I see where the trend is going. And you just wonder, are the Yankees bothering to look at any of these trends? Well, the the final point I'll make, and then we'll move on. Uh, the conditions for the option, the, the vesting option, it vests if he totals 1,000 plate appearances between 2017 and 2018, catches 90 games in 2018, and is not on the disabled list at the end of the 2018 season. Hmm. That's those are some interesting conditions, but not unreachable conditions. Uh, yeah. Uh, so. Okay. <laughs> All of a sudden, his rehab goes to another level. <laughs> September. <laughs> so as we move on to college football, um, Rod Bramblett, the play-by-play voice of the Auburn Tigers, posted a mashup of his calls from the end of the Georgia game and the end of the Alabama game. And I wanted to share that with you because just both calls are incredible. I'm not trying to rub this in anybody's face or anything, but just this needs to be shared. So this courtesy of Rod Bramblett, the end of the Georgia game and the end 
of the Alabama game. Here's your ball game. Nick Marshall stands in, steps up. He's going to throw down field. Just a home run ball, and uh, it is tipped off. And Lewis caught it on the deflection. Lewis is going to score. Lewis is going to score. Lewis is going to score. Touchdown, Auburn. Touchdown, Auburn. A miracle in Jordan Hare. A miracle in Jordan Hare. 73 yards, and the Tigers with 25 seconds to go. Lead 43 to 38. 56-yarder. It's got, no, does not have the leg. And Chris Davis takes it in the back of the end zone. He'll run it out to the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. Auburn's going to win the football game. He ran the missed field goal back. He ran it back 109 yards. They're not going to keep him off the field tonight. Holy cow. Oh, my God. Auburn wins. Auburn has won the Iron Bowl. Auburn has won the Iron Bowl in the most unbelievable fashion you will ever see. I cannot believe it. 34-28. And we thought a miracle in Jordan Hare was amazing. Oh, my Lord in heaven. Loud noises. Um. You know, if anyone else has been listening to the program for a while, then they will appreciate that in the middle of that call when his analyst screams, oh, my God, all I could think was Matthew Showalter. <laughs> so are are you calling your shot for that one now? Or are you wanting that added into the mix here? <laughs> I'm, I'm not. We don't have enough time to go through all of that right now, unfortunately. But I think you see what I'm saying. No, the call's not that long. We we could hear it if we really cared, but uh, it's, it's, it's up to you, pal. If, if you draw, I don't think anyone's ever mad about hearing that there ain't no flags. <laughs> All right, fine. If you say so. And let's see what baseball can do here. Wynn's going to milk everything that they can. They're not going to have to snap the ball till inside of a minute. Let's see what the defense can do. Handoff goes to the left. Ball balls on the ground. Baseball's going to pick it up. He could go. He could go. Go, Matthew. Go, Matthew. Go. Go, Matthew. Go. Oh, Matthew's going to go. He's going to score. Touchdown, Matthew Showalter. Touchdown, Matthew Showalter. Touchdown, Matthew Showalter. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And there ain't no flag. No penalty flags on the play. Matthew Showalter with the scoop and score goes 97. That was Showalter, baby. Matthew Showalter, 97 yards on the scoop and score goes for seven or six. Pioneers lead it by three. Show Walter there are so for many president things. right now. The thing that I love about that though is is the that was Show Walter Bay. <laughs> That's that that has become my favorite part of it. <laughs> we uh we we could break down so much of what happened in the Iron Bowl on Saturday, but I, I think at this point it's already been pretty well addressed. So it's been done. Let's uh let's take a look ahead at some of the action for this weekend. Why don't we? Um really quickly, the final game in Floyd Casey Stadium as it stands in Waco, Texas plus 14 and a half at Baylor. Oh my gosh. That's a lot. That line alone has to just make Texas fans sick to their stomachs. Uh, you you want to know what really makes them sick to their stomachs? Over yeah. under 72. You know, I have a quick story <laughs> about that. Because I was in uh, Vegas this past uh, weekend, right. uh, we, I'm sorry, Thursday, Friday, I left Saturday morning, whatever, people talking for three hours anyway uh, <laughs> there were ample opportunities for me to to wager on events and uh, i ended up uh, coming out ahead about a hundred dollars which is uh that's a big win for vegas anytime that you come out ahead anything it's a win for vegas right so one of the things though that i did see when i was looking over college football games was the over under on the fresno state san jose state game was 72 and you see that and you reflexively think okay if you take the under on this one I mean, all it's going to take is just a couple, you know, 
inadvertent fumbles or maybe, you know, a, a tipped pass that becomes an interception, you know, or just a few ill-timed turnovers or a guy slips or something like that, because that's a lot of points, right? That game went over in the second quarter. <laughs> wow. With an over-under of 72. It was 42-41 <laughs> at the half, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, like trying to bet an over under on college football anymore, or I should, I should take that back. Betting an under on college football anymore is just like asking to hate your life for the next few hours. If you played an over under of one fourteen, you lost. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just amazing. Uh, the, uh, aforementioned Auburn Tigers hosting the Missouri Tigers at the Georgia Dome, Auburn minus two. Don't you just have to believe that it's Auburn's year at this point? It has to be. It has to be. <laughs> Don't you just have to think so? By the way, did we either ever make a pick on that Baylor game? Um, the scary thing is that I'm actually going to swallow those points, even though it's the annoying 14 and a half and take Baylor. Yeah, I'm going Baylor. <laughs> Got to. Um, I'm, I'm going Auburn in the SEC championship game. I know I shouldn't with, with uh, James Franklin, and, and they, they've got the receivers and Lucas and Washington and, and DGB. It's just, it seems to be Auburn's year. Uh, I'm just picking against Missouri because I don't like Missouri. <laughs> the, uh, the riveting ACC championship tilt, Duke plus 29 against Florida State. You know, I, I just feel like betting uh, – I feel like backing Duke just because um, just because it was the easiest – some of the easiest money I made this past weekend was uh, Duke plus five. So thank you guys, and I will throw my support behind you for the rest of the year. See, I'm irrationally backing Duke because I'm pissed that the uh, the poll question on Dan Patrick earlier today uh, had the Heisman candidates with A.J. McCarron, Jameis Winston, and Jordan Lynch and didn't mention Andre Williams from B.C. So uh, I'm taking it out on Jameis Winston. Okay. All right. Uh, Stanford plus three against Arizona State in the Pac-12 championship. The fact that Arizona State – it was one of those things where I saw Arizona State's ranking pop up the other day. I was like, what, really? <laughs> yeah. Seriously? <laughs> I'm going to take Stanford. I'm good. Thanks. I'm taking Stanford, and I'm taking the under. The over-under is 56. The over-under is 56, and you're going to take Stanford. Well, I mean, they're one of the few teams in college football that are just happy to sit there with you know a, an actual fullback and – you know, multiple tight end sets and whatnot, and you know, have ten play drives that actually take several minutes, as opposed to a ten play drive that takes three three minutes and twelve seconds or something. Again, by the way, uh, for those of you listening to this program, we are not officially offering professional gambling advice. If you lose even a cent based off of whatever we tell you, you deserve to do so. If I'm going to offer you professional gambling advice, I'll do it in front of a much worse blue screen. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I will have a bad picture of Vegas behind me while I have my hair slicked off to a side and a gaudy chain. It's my five-star lock of the week. It's certified. Certified by what? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, the Big Ten championship game, Ohio State minus five and a hay against Sparty. Yeah, you know, I just don't. I, I, I know that. Ohio State didn't look all that good uh, against Michigan, and it took that that horribly telegraphed two point conversion. By the way, did did you think that as well? Uh, yes, that was pretty yeah, obvious. Like, uh, yeah, you're going to try to run the two guys off to clear out space for the last guy. Oh, I'll just come over and intercept <laughs> this pass. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to take Ohio State in that one. I mean, uh, you know. Yeah. It's more just a question of thinking that Ohio State just has more, just flat more talent. And a game that I know you'll be interested in talking about: the Mountain West Championship, Utah State plus three and a half against Fresnek. You know, that's that's a game where I mean, you wonder if Fresno is going to come out flat because they blew any chance they had at a BCS appearance. Um, by giving up just a boatload of points to San Jose State, and that kind of concerns me. At the same time, I do think they're, just, they're a better team than Utah State. So, uh, if you're going to take if you're going to take a number of points like three and a half, you better be sure that team can actually win the game. And uh, if Utah State actually can, so I'll take Fresno. The second year in a row, by the way, the Utah State coach is a hot commodity for open jobs elsewhere. Last year was Gary Anderson, who ended up, ended up at Wisconsin. This year, Matt Wells, the uh, top name on a lot of lists. You know, uh, that's just that's got to be such a rough spot if if you're in a place like Utah State where you're thinking, how am I going to get a guy to stay here if he's actually successful? Um, at the same time, I, that was something that I remember when San Diego State, before they started to have their little run of success here of late, 
we're talking about with coaches where names would be brought up and fans would actually say, I don't know if I'd want to hire him because I think he'd just be here for three years and then leave. And I thought to myself, well, I think it might be better to go to a few bowl games instead of continually winning three or four games. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If you're a stepping stone program, they're going to leave your your program in a better position than they found it. So it's it's a bummer if you're a Utah State fan at the same time. You also have a pretty good team if people are, people are looking to your school to continually pluck coaches. By the way, as we uh, get ready to wind down the program, take a look at a couple of NFL games, I, sh- I should mention we need to have the E-Bar uh, Be Real Gambling Service and, and have a 30-minute uh, you know, infomercial on the USA Network at 9 o'clock on Saturday mornings. I think that's a great idea. I don't know when we can start taping it, but I would love to do that. Um, you know, we could be on a remote, we could be on satellite to each other when we're really in the same room to try to make it look like a bigger show. By the way, uh, in the chat room, my, my dad asking about Ed Orgeron. Um, first of all, I don't necessarily agree with the way he did it, maybe, but. Orgeron, once he found out he wasn't getting that job, he's just like, you know what, screw you guys, I'm out. I mean, and again, maybe he didn't do it the best way. Um, Brian Wright at FAU is is kind of going through the same thing. He might not get the full-time job after winning four straight after Carl Polini got fired. But at least he's staying around just in case. Uh, Orgeron's going to end up as a head coach somewhere, probably, you know, a Mac school or Sunbelt school or something like that. Uh, I, I don't think he goes back to being a coordinator again. I think he ends up as a head coach somewhere lesser. You know, I I think that would be an interesting spot for him because he's got the reputation as such a great recruiter that I would be interested to see what he would be able to do at a a lower tier school like that. And not that he, not saying that he wouldn't necessarily be successful, but just would be curious to see how that would all work out for him. There's some interesting talk about Bobby Petrino possibly ending up at a bigger school after this year and Orgeron taking over at Western Kentucky. Well, I mean, Petrino's done a lot for that program in the time he's been there, but you know, I'm really surprised that it's taken as long as it has for him to get kind of back on the map. I know that was a bad situation that he was in before, but at the same time, the guy always seems to win. And, um, you know, somehow that usually causes people to look right past any other, uh, any issues. Let me also say how, how hilarious it was last year that Middle goes 8-4, and four, doesn't make a bowl, and Western Kentucky fans start running their mouth about Middle and, you know, how, how uh, hilarious it was that they didn't make a bowl. This year, Western 8-4 and four and probably not going to make a bowl. Oh, I bet you feel real bad for them after they ran their mouths. Yeah, I'm just heartbroken, especially considering the fact that Middle's in Conference USA now and is pretty much assured of the bull bid. Now, the other thing that you were saying to me is it might be an alma mater matchup for us as there is uh, there are projections out there showing Middle Tennessee and San Diego State playing in the Hawaii Bowl. Uh, yeah, and we're going to have a bowl picks contest on the program. That might, that might get a little interesting. Uh, that, yeah, we're going to have to just, you know... I'm sure we're going to have to make it real personal and talk a lot of trash <laughs> while we're on the show. Or, yeah. or we could just do something as simple as wager a hat of the school. <laughs> but that's the thing. is I wouldn't, I wouldn't care if I was wearing <laughs> – I would be happy to wear a middle Tennessee hat, and you would be happy to be wearing an Aztec hat. So that would be like a win-win bet for everybody. See, I'm still pissed that I saw an Aztec snapback recently, and I went to go buy it for you, and they were out of it. <sighs> so weak. And it was – you know, the th- it was the the old one that had the like the uh, the Aztecs in in lowercase lettering, kind of like the Padre look. Oh, okay. I was going to ask if it was the Angry Monty. No, if you remember the Angry Mask? Oh, that I was. Do. If I could find one of those, I would buy that in a heartbeat. I actually saw one randomly at a liquor store in Pacific Beach, <laughs> but it was. I, I thought it was. I was like, what? What? What is this? But it was a seven and five eighths. That's my size. Well. Darn it, I wish I'd known that because then I could have shifted across the country to you. But, uh, yeah, I'm more like seven and a quarter to seven and three-eighths. So I was like, oh, God, who's going to be – is Bruce Bochy coming here very often? Is that what happens? Is Kevin Mench frequent your store? <laughs> My dad's suggesting we should both go out to Hawaii and cover that game. Yeah, with uh, Absolutely. All, the, all the money that we make from this program. Uh, I could get his credential, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that would work. That would work, uh, definitely. I mean, I could probably get a credential for – Madness, who knows? Of course, the ACC didn't really want to credential me again this year, but who knows? Um, real quick look at the some of the NFL games of note this week. Chiefs only minus three at Washington. The thing about the Chiefs right now is, that, I mean, their defense, you know, granted it's been up against the Broncos two of the last three weeks, but the, their defense is just still so banged up right now. And I don't know. I mean, I, if it were anyone other than, than, the, than who they're playing, I'd feel worse about it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, same. I mean, that's that's 
the Redskins. I mean, they're they're just a wreck this year. Panthers plus three and a half at New Orleans. That's a really interesting line. I mean, the, the Saints couldn't have looked worse in the Monday night game. It was one of those ones where you know I mentioned to my girlfriend, I'm like, no, I, I definitely want to watch some of this Monday night game. Should be a real interesting game. And then by the time it was seventeen nothing, I was like, you know what, I'm good. <laughs> I think I already got the idea of pretty much how this is going to go. And, you know, there are games like, uh, you know, Patriots-Broncos a few weeks ago where you feel foolish for thinking that way. But it was, but this, this game on Monday night was not any sort of game where you, where you felt like it could go any other way once it started the way it did, you know. And uh, so that three-and-a-half line is just so interesting uh, because you wonder um, the Panthers' front seven is very good. And it's been able to, with the way that they've been able to get pressure on the quarterback, it's helped the back end of their defense. But with the way that the Saints run so many different receivers at you, uh, do you think that the Panthers back end of the secondary is going to be able to hold up against the Saints passing game? Uh, The one thing I will say, they can't run cover zero pretty much at all. I mean, Mike Mitchell's had a great year at safety. Uh, They've they've had a lot of good contributions from a lot of no-name guys. In the uh, in the back four of that secondary, uh, Captain Munderland, Melvin White, et cetera, et cetera. But you you can't run cover zero against that offense. They're they're going to have to have uh, you know Keekly covering Graham at times, which is an interesting matchup. It's that's a bad idea. Jeans is what it is. Yeah. Um, the 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 one good thing for Carolina is Charles Johnson should be back, so it allows them to get a little more pressure upfield. I know Wes Horton did okay uh, against Tampa Bay the other day, and they've gotten some decent. Uh, you know, performances out of Mario Addison and Frank Alexander and some other fairly lesser-named guys. But Johnson is one of those guys who's a game-changer on one side with Greg Hardy on the other. So, I mean, just thinking about that, though, especially, you know, normally I would think after all the travel and short week and all that kind of stuff, I, I would be wondering about how the Saints would be able to hold up. Uh, with this one, I just think that the Saints are pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. That's that's fair. <laughs> Three more games before we wrap up. Uh, Lions plus two and a half in Philadelphia. Plus, really? Yeah. That's. I mean, I know that they've been a much better team at home, uh, and the Eagles have played much better at late, but I'd be inclined to back Detroit. Uh, I would, too. Despite Nick Foles' success and uh, Chip Kelly molding him into a passer, uh, I still like Detroit there. I mean, especially when you consider the fact that they can basically put away the NFC North this weekend because still no word on Rodgers, still no word on Cutler. You know, they they could put away that division this weekend. Well, I mean, it, you know, it, it's a game with a whole lot more in the way of playoff implications than I think that, you know, we expected just because there are actually some playoff implications for the Eagles on the other side too. <laughs> yeah, very true. Although they've still got a, uh, a mountain to climb of their own. And it's not like they have an airtight defense either. You know, Detroit still, uh, I mean, that offense is able to put up some pretty godly numbers through the air. The bigger question is, okay, so Matt Stafford might throw for 302 touchdowns. How many interceptions will it come with? Yeah, another fair question. I don't know. I I like Detroit. Close game, but Mm -hmm. I like Detroit. Um, I'll take the points. (laughs) By the way, my my dad mentioning the uh, Panthers song, I, I might play that before the end of the program just because it's so terrible um giants plus three at the charger you know that's a really i mean the bolts are pretty pretty much dead and buried i think in the afc playoff picture in my mind i know that that statistically isn't the case but you know the only putting up 10 points at home to cincinnati um Yikes! That's that was a pretty scary output for a team that offensively had been pretty good all year, um, and, and the fact that the fans have backed the team to the point that the Chargers were the team to host the first NFL blackout this year. Uh, it just it's something where I, I would not be surprised if the Chargers won this game at all. I mean, uh, obviously they're favored. At the same time, the Giants just seem like they're on one of those runs that they get on towards the end of the year, which I don't know why it happens uh, so consistently, but it seems to. Yeah, and the uh, the uh, the Chargers apparently are not going to sell out this weekend either. Um, I well, you know, I'm not surprised to hear it, but you know, the, the whole Chargers situation is so odd. People say that there's not uh, passion for the team and and those kinds of things, and I really 
I, I just don't agree with that. There are a lot of people that are really passionate Charger fans, but it's it's something where it's like, look, we're we're going to a, a, a completely broken down stadium. Um, the other thing that's also come with it is the element the, the the fan element at Charger game has kind of shifted a little bit in the last few years, um, and it's not quite as an enjoyable place to be, in my opinion, as it was before. Um, but there are a lot of people that are really passionate about the Chargers in this town. Not, and I'm not trying to, to pass off San Diego as anything, you know, like a, a really diehard NFL city. But at the same time, there are people that care very deeply about this franchise. And maybe they are going to games or maybe they're not. But some of the ticket prices to go to a facility that's in as terrible a shape as Qualcomm is, those are pretty tough to swallow. And uh, finally, the Seabags plus two and a half at San Francisco. I, I, I'm, despite the fact that I am a Niner fan, I, I still feel like they are going to win this game because they know they really have to. Uh, as weak as the AFC playoff picture is, the Niners actually need this win to hang on to the wild card spot that they have. Yeah, you know, and the, it's amazing uh, to look at teams like Arizona right there in the playoff picture. Yeah, and the scary thing is Carolina keeps winning ahead of you, and they've already got a game on you as it is. Right. Plus the uh, plus the victory on the field. So, so I don't doubt that uh, you know the Seahawks are a very good team, but they are coming off a short week. Um, and despite the fact that I completely disregarded that as a rationale for anything with the Saints, um, that was a really emotional win for the Seahawks. You could see how much they were up for that game. Not that they won't be up for this game with the Niners, but that's a pretty tough stretch back to back to play the Monday night game against the Saints, where it's like, hey, show us your. Oh, a legitimate team here in the NFC, uh, and then then you have to go play your biggest division rival the following week in their house. So that just seems like a lot to ask of the Seahawks. The Niners know that they need this game uh, a whole lot more, and, and that's my rationale for backing the Niners in that one. By the way, as we prepare to close out the program, this is what my father was referring to. So uh, we'll, we'll play this one last time. We used to play it as, as kind of uh, you know a joke mm-hmm. whenever the Panthers would win, which was – so rare, but now we haven't played it in a while, and we might as well play it one more time on the program. Just stand and cheer for the Panthers in our grand old name. Nothing could be finer That crescendo at the end is hot. That's that's amazing. <laughs> now, did they play that at the game still? Um, they did. They used to play it after it was pretty much assured that the Panthers would win the game. Now, instead, they play Sweet Caroline. I think that's a good move. <laughs> and uh, I don't think we can really go anywhere else from that. So we'll we'll let that be the final word on the program. I want to thank you for joining us. For Sports Matters, December 3rd, 2013. Only two more of these now left in the year. Unless we do a year-end program, which for this, who knows. But uh, again, as, as we said on Did That Make Air, it's birthday month for Ed and me. So go buy us something nice. Until next week, see you back here, same time, same channel. He's Ed, I'm Brian. Take care. Enjoy the weekend of action. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>